0: Welcome back as we continue our studies in the book of Exodus, and this week we find ourselves in Torah portion Ki Tisah, uh, which is Exodus chapter 30, verse 11, on to the end of chapter 34. Ki Tisah comes from the second verse of our portion. Uh, it says, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Ki Tisah et Rosh, B'nai Israel, when you lift up the head of the children of Israel. Um, some translations will render this as when you take a census, and that is what they're doing. But uh, they don't say take a census. They say lift up the head. It's like lifting up each head and God looking at them face to face. You see the face, and that's one of the people of Israel, one of my children, one of my sheep. What's interesting about those four words, ki tisa et rosh, uh, they spell, the first letters spell, Kof, Tav, Aleph, Resh, which is the word Keter, crown. And I think it's something beautiful to think that when God looks us in the face, he lifts our faces, yes, you're one of mine. There's a crown involved in that. Because if we're children of the king, then uh, we receive a crown as well. And after all, doesn't Revelation talk about the elders casting their crowns before the throne? And um, there's something very royal and, and very dignified by, uh, about being one of, one of God's children. Now to introduce this, this portion, I, I couldn't quite decide whether to take these next remarks and put them at the beginning or the end of the teaching. And uh, they belong both places, but I'm going to put them at the beginning because I'm afraid I'll forget them if I leave them to the end. But I want to do a little review of what's been happening so far. Back in chapter 20, we find the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they're waiting for the day when God's going to speak, and then in the chapter, God speaks. They all hear him, and uh, they see the smoke and the fire and, and the voice of God. They just feel like they're undone. They're terrified by it, and God speaks forth the ten words, the ten commandments. And then they tell Moses, Moses if he keeps speaking to us, we're going to die. You go talk to him. So Moses goes up the mountain, and in chapters 21, 22, and 23, Moses receives the commandments called Mishpatim. And we have a Torah portion called Mishpatim that we covered just a few weeks ago. So he gives these commandments. And, um, and the people behave themselves at the foot of the mountain. In chapter 24, Moses comes back down, and he writes the commandments out. He reads them to the people, and, he's, and uh, they say everything God has said, we're going to do. And uh, he sprinkles them with the blood, says, behold, the blood of the covenant. And he, so the covenant is sealed with the people. And then in chapter 25, he again ascends Mount Sinai. And God begins to give him the instructions for the tabernacle. And as we come to this week's portion, he's still on top of Mount Sinai. He's there from chapter 25 up through chapter 31 for 40 days and 40 nights. And you know what happens when he comes back down. He finds the people committing idolatry. And they're living a very immoral, raucous life. Not all of them, but many of them. The tribe of Levi did not participate in those antics. And uh, they're worshiping a the golden calf. And it, it was the lowest point, one of the lowest points, if not the lowest point in Israel's history. But it's followed by one of the highest, most beautiful things that's in the Torah, at least in my opinion. And that's when Moses goes back up, and he beholds God, and His thirteen attributes of mercy, which we'll get to in a moment. But I want you to think about this: Mount Sinai is always seen as a wedding ceremony between God and His people. They enter into covenant with each other. They're under the hoopah together, under the under the uh, uh, the, the shadow of God. And yet, while Moses goes away to get the plans for the house where God can dwell with them, it's almost as if they begin to commit adultery under the hoopah. And that's a, a very striking image, but that is the image being presented here. We human beings are a very fickle group. We're very quick to forget, very quick to stray. And we're going to try to analyze what was going on in their minds, in their hearts, that they could do such a thing, that we can do such a thing. And we also want to see what the antidote is to this, how we can prevent it. So let's dive right in. Now, I'm going to do things a little out of order. I'm going to come back to chapter 30 in a moment, but I would like for us to turn to chapter 31. Chapter 31. Last week and the week before we have been reading about the plans of the tabernacle and the details and this beautiful, beautiful picture God gives us that illustrates the body, soul, and spirit and and many other things that God wants to teach the scriptures. And here in chapter 31, the beginning, says Adonai spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by the name Betzalel, son of Uri, son of Hur. And there is the passage. And he is is from the tribe of Judah. And remember Judah was the fourth born, but he was elevated to the firstborn status, and the kings of Israel all come from Judah. Messiah was from the tribe of Judah. So I have filled him with the spirit of Elohim, with Chokhmah, which is wisdom, and Bina, or Tavina, I think is the word used here, which means understanding. And Da'at, which is knowledge. And all malchma, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing that right, malacha, uh, malacha, work. So he gives them kokma bina daat to produce malacha, work, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. You find this triad of kokma bina daat many times in Scripture, and you've heard me share before that. Uh, the Chabad movement, this orthodox Jewish movement, comes from the opening letters of the Ha of Chokmah, the, the B of Bina, and the D of Da'at, and they came up with this term Chabad, and uh, it's founded on these three things, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. One of the passages that I love that comments on this is in Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4. It says, By chokmah, by wisdom, a house is built. And by binah, understanding, it is established, it's firm. it gets a foundation under it. By da'at, by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. You know, I've met people who put a premium on knowledge. They love knowledge. They're always studying the word to get more and more and more knowledge. But they lack wisdom and their house is never built. And what is knowledge? It's the furniture in the rooms of the house. But without a house, the furniture is just sitting out there in a the field, which looks really foolish. And I know, I know people who are intelligent and knowledgeable and very foolish. And what's going to happen to your beautiful furniture that you've spent time and effort to acquire? if it's just sitting out in the field. It's not going to be beautiful very long. It's going to deteriorate very quickly. And you're going to find that it doesn't get used much because it it just rots and falls to pieces. So we start by building the house, and it's built with chokmah, with wisdom. And by understanding it is established, it's firmed, it's, it's got a foundation under it. And if we have wisdom and understanding, then our knowledge is going to have more application. It's going to mean more. It's going to be protected. It's going to be kept. It's going to be used for, for the benefit of others and for ourselves. But to put knowledge before wisdom and understanding just simply isn't wise. And what is understanding? What is this foundation that wisdom can, can rest upon? Understanding is be able to take something that is wise and break it down and know how to apply it in a wise way. And, um, you know, having wisdom and knowledge is are, are one thing, but having understanding, knowing how to apply it, how to break it down and understand it, how to communicate it. And uh, knowing how to communicate something is is a skill that I'm still actively pursuing. Because sometimes I can see... an issue and a solution to an issue but communicating it I'm just a kind of a very matter-of-fact person I just say it and Robin will be nudging me like tone it down just uh, okay let me think of a more gentle way of saying this I just like being told straight up what's going on so I can fix it but uh, understanding is very important so that our wisdom will appear as wisdom and recognize as such and that our our house stays upright and straight and square. You know, Paul also uses these three terms several places in his letters. In Colossians 1.9, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge, the da'at, of his will, and all spiritual kokmah, wisdom, and bina, understanding. So these three things that God put in Bezalel. So that he could build the tabernacle, take what was given to Moses on the mountain and bring it into physical reality. These are the things we need to take God's plan, his Torah, take it in and bring it into reality in our lives so that we can be the tabernacle God wants us to be. And our house, our tabernacle will be built with wisdom, with God's wisdom and understanding and that the knowledge we acquire will find a home in a proper arrangement. It will be something beautiful and useful. Well, there's much more to say about this, so we could take a whole teaching or two and talk about kokma, bina, and um, knowledge. But the purpose of this is to produce malakha, to produce work. To take these things, which are non-physical and use them to shape and bring into physical reality things that don't yet exist, to do works, to have an impact on people's lives, to change this world, to bring tikkun to this world. So we need all three. If we just have one or two, it's not going to be very effective. We need all three of these to bring about the malachah, the work that God has for us to do. Because we were, after all, created for good works in Messiah Yeshua. All right, now let's go back to chapter 30. Something I noticed this time around as I was reading, I was focusing on the anointing oil, the anointing oil, which is described starting in verse 23. And this is what it says. Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, Half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. These first four ingredients are solids, but they are to be crushed together and mixed together, and olive oil provides the medium, the liquid, which will make the anointing oil. Now, we're all familiar with the word myrrh, because we think of the, the story of the wise men who came and brought gifts to the a young Messiah. But after the anointing oil, we read about the incense. And here's what it says. In chapter 30, verse 34, Adonai said to Moses, take sweet spices, and here they are, stacte, or I think it's how it's pronounced, and onika, and galbanum, And pure frankincense. I have to comment on galbanum. I can never pass this up without making this comment. And uh, I know probably all of you have heard this many times. But galbanum by itself is not a very sweet-smelling spice. In fact, it smells just downright awful. It's horrible by itself. And so the rabbis say, well, why is this mixed in with the other ingredients, which all smell wonderful? And the reason is, is because when it's mixed in with the other ingredients, it makes them, it expands their, their, their fragrance. It enhances their fragrance. And their, the beautiful aroma comes from them is even greater. So mixing in this stinky stuff, this galbanum, makes the whole thing smell better. By itself, it doesn't smell so good. And the rabbis then draw the lesson from this, that we as a community are all like ingredients in the incense. And there are a few of us that are just galbanum. We don't smell that great. We're just kind of off-putting. But somehow I see that in every community, there's always uh, a few what we call EGRs, Extra Grace Required. And their presence in the community, though it can be irritating by itself, it brings out that extra measure of grace in everyone else. It stretches us all to love a bit more, to be a little more patient, a little more gracious, a little more forgiving. And so even the the galbanum in our communities serves a very useful purpose. And one of the worst things we can do is to remove a person we believe is galbanum because we find them irritating. Let that irritation inside of you be like the grain of sand inside of an oyster and let it produce a pearl, something of great value. So, now, of course, you know where I'm going with this. We see myrrh as the first ingredient in the anointing oil. Frankincense as the final ingredient in the four ingredients in the incense. And in Matthew 2.11, it says, it's talking about Messiah when he was young. And the wise men came and brought uh, gifts. It says, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We've seen the frankincense. We saw the myrrh back with the anointing oil. But where's the gold? Is there a corresponding gold in our passage? And yes, there is. You actually have to back up to near the end of last week's portion where it describes the high priest's outer garments. All the priests, the Levitical priests, wore four white linen garments. They had white linen, you might call it underwear. They wore a white linen robe, a white linen sash that wrapped around that robe, and then a white linen uh, headpiece, like a turban or a cap. But the high priest wore these, plus an additional four garments called The gold garments, and you can read about those in Exodus 28, but this is what it says. They shall receive the gold, the blue, the purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, five ingredients, like the anointing oil had five ingredients. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. So what we see here is the gold that corresponds to the gifts brought by the Magi to the young Messiah. They brought him gold, which corresponds to the high priest clothing. They brought frankincense, which was a part of the incense. And they brought myrrh, which was was the first ingredient mentioned in the anointing oil. It's almost as if God is saying, in Messiah, these three things are brought together. The anointing oil, the word Messiah itself, Mashiach, it means anointed one. And so he is the anointed one. Priests and kings and prophets were all anointed. But generally when we speak of an anointed one, we're referring to kings. David is called a Mashiach, an anointed one, because he was anointed as king. In fact, he's anointed as king twice. And so the... The oil speaks of Messiah as King, King Messiah. And the frankincense refers that he's our intercessor because the incense was to be burnt on the altar as a way of God and man connecting. The priest would bring the incense and the fragrance would go on into the Holy of Holies. It's always a picture of prayer. And Revelation talks about the prayers of the saints being like incense that arises to God. And on Yom Kippur, the high priest would take incense directly into the Holy of Holies and burn it there. Incense, a picture of prayer. Prayer is always intercession, man connecting with God. And we know that Messiah is our ladder and we come to the Father through him. He is our intercessor, our mediator. And so the frankincense refers to this role. And then the myrrh, of course, uh, is part of the the, uh, anointing oil. Frankincense, part of the um, incense. And then the gold, because Messiah is our high priest. And all of these speak of intercession. All of these speak of someone who stands in the gap between God and man and brings the two together. As King Messiah, as our high priest and as the, the one through whom we can pray. We pray Beshem Yeshua and his name. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. So whenever you think of what the wise men brought, think about these three elements, the incense, the anointing oil, and the clothing of the high priest. Well, let's move on. I need to pick up the pace just a little bit. Now let's go back across chapter 31 and let's come to chapter 32. And um, in chapter 32, it certainly is not my favorite chapter in the Torah because this is what it says. Verse 1. The people saw that Moses had delayed in descending the mountain. He didn't come back when they thought he should and the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Rise up, make for us gods that will go before us. For this man Moses, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what became of him. So they initiate this horrible sin of worshiping the golden calf, this sin of idolatry, which God has already forbidden them back in the chapters of Mishpatim, they do this because of ignorance. We don't know what's happened to him. We don't know. And you know, we hate to be in a position where we don't know something. We just hate it when we don't know what God is doing. We want knowledge. But what we tend to do instead of just resting, Instead of just being still, being patient, we have to get innovative. And that's when we get in trouble. That's how religions get started. God had given instructions that the people are to wait. And if they just waited, in fact, the rabbi said they just waited just a few more hours none of this horrible stuff would have happened. But they didn't wait. You know, the, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but the ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, he said it's better to do nothing than to be busy doing nothing. And so the Israelites got busy doing nothing. So we don't know what's happened to him. You know, if there's something you don't know and God's not giving you the information you want, then be content to not know until he decides it's time to give you the information you want. But the worst thing you can do is to begin to innovate and fill in your ignorance with something that is contrary to God's will. So we don't know what became of him. So Aaron said to them, Remove the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, sons, and daughters, and bring them to me. Now, that word remove is is pretty polite. Uh, The the verb is parak, which means to rip out, to break off. It's a term that means violence, actually. And it's used three times in the Torah, in in this book, in Exodus. Let me back that up. It's used four times in the Torah, but three of those times are right here in this chapter, in the incident of the golden calf. But the first time it's found is back in Genesis. And in Genesis, it's used in the context of breaking off one's yoke. So since the first time paraka is used, it's breaking a yoke. We need to bring that forward into this chapter where the second, third, and fourth appearances of the word are found. And he says to break off the rings in the ears of your wives and your children. No, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Physical light comes through the eye, spiritual light comes in through the ears. And Israel is told, Shema, hear, O Israel, Shema. And Shema is also the word that means to obey. The earrings, the adornment for the ear, is like a picture of a yoke, meaning my ears belong to God. And of course, the bond servant who had fulfilled his six years of service, he was free to go, but if he chose to stay, as we read back in Mishpatim, he came to his master and says, I love my master. I love my wife and children. I love everything he's done for me. I don't want to go free. Then his master brings him to the door of the doorpost and puts his ear against it and puts an all through his ear. And with that hole in his ear, where you might put an earring, represents the fact that, this person has exchanged his personal freedom to be a bondservant to his master. And the way we are bondservants to God is by giving him our ears. And by giving him our ears, saying, I'm going to hear, I'm going to obey what you tell me to do. So this picture here, this image of break off those gold earrings is like a picture of casting off the yoke of Torah and doing things my way. It says, the entire people remove the gold rings. Now, when we read something like the entire people, it sounds like every man, woman, and child did this. But we need to understand that when it says the entire people, sometimes the word simply uses words the way we use words, where we say, boy, everybody was there. Well, not everybody was there. Everybody had a great time. Well, maybe not everybody. And this is saying the entire people, meaning most of the people did we find out later that the tribe of Levi did not. They removed the gold rings that were in their ears, brought them to Aaron, he took them from their hands, and it goes on to talk about how he created this golden calf. And boy, did they enjoy that golden calf. They were showing us how worship can be fun. But this brings up a question. Should we enjoy worship should we enjoy worship I know there are some people who have come through the doors of Beth the and a week or two or three later they went back out and you have a conversation well, I didn't enjoy the worship so I'm going to go someplace else where I enjoy the worship and I always have to ask the question sometimes I ask them aloud who is the worship for Is it for your enjoyment or is it for God's enjoyment? Who is supposed to be the one enjoying? But let's define the word enjoy because there are times I truly enjoy my time of worship with God. So let's define enjoy. We learned last week about how we are made up of a body, which is physical, with five physical senses. I am a soul. That's where my mind, my will, and my emotions dwell. But I have a spirit, and my spirit has sensitivities as well that need to grow more sensitive over time. And my spirit is where I access the spiritual realm. Now, enjoyment can come in three categories as well. There's pleasure, which is physical. Pleasure is under our control. If you want to enjoy pleasure, there are things you can do, there is money you can spend, there are drugs you can take, and you can have pleasure. It often can be illicit pleasure. It can be pleasure that is not uh, sanctioned by God. But pleasure is under our control. It's usually short-lived and it becomes addictive, and we have to be careful about the pleasures. But God does provide pleasures for us, but those are physical. Now, in the soul, we experience happiness. That is something we experience in our mind, our will, and especially in our emotions. And happiness is a little longer lived, but happiness itself can be fickle. It can depend on our conditions and our circumstances. And we can be very happy until a bit of bad news comes our way. Then all of a sudden we're shocked. Oh, no. And we become sad and concerned. Or good news can come our way and suddenly we're related. So our happiness depends upon external influences, and it's not as much in our control as pleasure. But we can still choose happiness, and there are times you simply have to choose to be happy, and and we do have some control. But in the spirit, there's something much deeper, something more permanent, more solid than pleasure or happiness, and that's joy. And joy, as we know, is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a spiritual thing. So even when I'm enjoying pleasure or not enjoying pleasure, maybe I'm in the dentist chair or I'm going through an illness and there's not much pleasure to be had, deep down I can still experience that that spark of joy. And when there's bad news, in fact, when I'm grieving, I've lost a loved one, and, um, and there's bad news. That spark of joy can be down there because it's not fickle. It's not dependent on physical circumstances or emotions. It's something deeper. I know in C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he talks about his first experience of this thing called joy. He was a young boy and he describes it. And what he experienced at that moment, it was something he knew was otherworldly. But it's something he, he wanted so badly, he'd never forgotten. And when he finally came to Messiah and gave his life to the Lord, he was surprised by joy. Joy came flooding back in. And even when he was grieving, even when he was ill, even when he was aging, that joy was there. Something deeper, something solid and something spiritual that goes far beyond pleasure and mere happiness. Joy. When we worship, worship is not meant to be pleasurable. And if you're looking for a congregation where worship is pleasurable to the senses because it's loud and there are lots of flashing lights, fog machines, and musicians, and dancing. And I'm not necessarily saying those things are wrong. I'm just saying that's not worship. It's praise, but it's not worship. Yeshua told the woman at the well, God is spirit, and he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is a function of the spirit. In fact, the word worship is the word chava. It means to go prostrate. That's what it means. Get yourself out of the way. Make yourself low, still, and quiet. What I also find fascinating is chava is also the Hebrew word for Adam's wife, Eve. Eve's name was chava, which is the same word as worship. And it tells us there in Genesis that she was the mother of all living. She's the mother of all living. Let's put these pieces together. Worship, which means being physically still. Not seeking pleasure, not even seeking happiness, just seeking connection with God. Putting the flesh down for a moment. Just being still, not blocking anyone's view of what's going on. Just being still and quiet, worship in spirit and truth, that becomes the mother of very living thing in my life. Now, if you want to be truly alive and experience real life and purpose and live life to the fullest, Chava is the mother of all living. Learn to worship. And you know what will grow out of that? You might start to experience some happiness. You might even begin to experience some pleasure, the pleasure of just being at rest and being still. But pleasure and happiness are not our goal. It's not what we seek when we worship. So should we enjoy worship? Yes and no. Yes, if it's true joy that comes from being in God's presence. But no, if you're looking for pleasure and thrills and excitement and goosebumps, Mm-mm. No, that's not what you should be seeking. Whenever our worship of God is according to our design, a molten calf is created and the Torah is destroyed. I put that last bit in because when, when Moses came down from the mountain, he's got the stone tablets that God had cut out and engraved with his finger. They had the Ten Commandments. And when he saw the idolatry, the, the, the tablets were smashed. And when we decide to worship God the way I want to worship, worship him, there's a golden calf involved. And you know, in so many communities, well-intended faith communities, both churches and synagogues, there's a little bit of odor of golden calf going on. Because there are things there that God did not command, and he didn't desire, didn't request. But we think they're a good idea. I'm not saying we should never come up with ideas for enhancing a time of praise and worship. But we need to be very, very careful that they do not distract from God. Remember the commandment God gave earlier in in Exodus where he says, if you make a stone altar, don't lift up your engraving tool. Don't carve it. Don't try to make the altar the thing that people are attracted to. They should be attracted to the God of the altar. The altar is a place where you come to make a sacrifice to me. But if it becomes a distraction from me, it becomes little golden calfish. And we need to be careful of that. We need to be very careful. Now, what's interesting The story of the golden calf contains the antidote to the golden calf. Because right before the incident of the golden calf, they are near the end of chapter 31. And then after the golden calf and chapter 35, there's a commandment that's discussed. And it's the same commandment. Let's see what it is. Back up to chapter 31, verse 12. Adonai said to Moses, saying, Now you speak to the children of Israel, saying, However, you must observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you for your generations to know that I am Adonai who makes you holy. And it goes on to talk about the Sabbath. Then after the story of the golden calf, you go to chapter 35, and verse 1, this is what it says. Moses assembled the entire assembly of the children of Israel, said to them, These are the things that Adam and I commanded to do them. On six days work may be done, but the seventh day shall be holy for you, a day of complete rest for Adonai. Whoops. Sabbath again. The rabbis have noticed this and commented on it frequently. And they ask the question, why is the instance of the golden calf preceded by the commandment to do the Sabbath and it's followed by the commandment to do the Sabbath? And they say because it is the antidote to golden calf worship. How is that? Remember what I said about rest? About chava worship means being still, just going on your face, doing nothing, just being aware of God turning off the physical, to a degree, turning off the soul, at least the emotions, and just focusing on who God is, just soaking in who he is, and breathing back out his attributes. That's what the heart of Sabbath is about, resting from your own ways, resting from being busy, uh, resting from your own malacha, your own works. And when we don't come into a place of true rest, and if the people had only just been still, the foot of Mount Sinai just been still, they'd heard God just speak from this mountain. Moses had gone up to the mountain and said he would come back. All they had to do was to be still, but they didn't labor to enter into his rest. And they got so antsy, and their flesh and their their emotions got so worked up, We don't know what's happened to him. What are we going to do? He's not coming back on time. They had to do something, and what they did was the worst possible thing they could have ever done. If only they'd learned to rest. Rabbi Jonathan Sack says, Shabbat is the antidote to the golden calf because it is the day when we stop thinking of the price of things and focus instead on the value of things. And what he's saying here is that six days a week we work and we generally work so that there's a paycheck comes in at the end of the week. And we then want to use those those wages wisely to purchase food and clothing and utilities and shelter and whatever we need. And so six days are presented uh, are committed to working so we can receive wages for those days. But on Shabbat we should completely turn off that thinking. And we withdraw from the world of working, of buying and selling, of of building, and trying to engage the physical world and shape it to our will. To try to benefit ourselves through works, uh, but instead to be still. Just to be still. To worship. Because Ka'va is the mother of all living. And if we learn how to really keep the Sabbath, and not make an idol of the Sabbath, I know people who do that. They've made a golden calf of the Sabbath itself. They don't worship God on the Sabbath. They worship the Sabbath and don't even hardly think about God. We need to learn how to be still and worship. Because it's in this stillness we truly possess our souls. It's when our spirit can rise up to take charge of the soul and of the flesh. If we walk in the spirit, we won't fulfill the strong desires of the flesh. Shabbat is the antidote to the golden calf. And then we come on over to um, this wonderful passage, which I, I just love. And if we go on to chapter 33... I know we're skipping a lot, but um, you can go back to past teachings I've done on Ki Tisa, and uh, you can pick up some of the the bits and pieces that we're skipping over here. And so, near the end of chapter 33, in verse 18, Moses is back on the mountain the second time. And he says to God, Show me your chavod." Show me your chavod, your glory. The word chavod means glory. It also means weight. That's interesting, isn't it? But he says, I want to know your reality. I want to know you more deeply and more intimately, body, soul, and spirit than I have up to this time. And no one had spent time in God's presence as Moses had, except for maybe Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, I want to see your glory. I just want to see it. I want to see you better. And God says to him, verse 19, I shall make all my tov, my goodness, pass before you. And then Moses has this amazing experience where God reveals his 13 attributes of mercy. I remember one time, we were in uh, England and I was... Invited to teach at a, um, a congregation in London, and it was a wonderful experience. And um, and this was the topic. And as I was preparing, I started asking myself the question: What makes God God? And you know, growing up in an evangelical church, uh, we had reviewed and memorized God's three main. Um, I wouldn't call them attributes, but his abilities, his strengths, his powers. And those three things, and you probably know what they are, they are omnipotence. Omnipotence, which means all power. He has all power. He can do everything. Anything and everything. And also, he has all knowledge. We call that omniscience. He knows all things. There's nothing that escapes his notice. Also, he's everywhere at one time. This is called omnipresence. And we generally tend to think of these three as the three things that make God God. But let me ask you something. Do these three things make you love him more? Do these three things help you know him more? Do these three things create in you a greater desire to spend time in his presence, to devote yourselves to him? I can see how these three things might inspire greater fear of God, and that is good. But when we look at these three things, they are three abilities, power, knowledge, and presence everywhere. These are three abilities. But these make God more of a superhero with the great powers. But they don't make him approachable. What do the things really make God, God? Of course, these three things are three powers. But they tell us nothing about who he is. Only what he can do. What he's capable of. But who is he? How can I love a God who's just powerful, knowledgeable, and everywhere? How can I love such a God? Yet we're commanded to love him. How can we do that? Well, we find the answer in chapter 34. In chapter 34, starting with verse 5, it says, Adonai descended in a cloud and stood with him, with Moses there, and he called out with the name Yethevate. Well we say Adonai. Adonai passed before and proclaimed. Adonai, Adonai, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in kindness and truth, preserver of kindness for thousands of generations, forgiver of iniquity, willful sin and error, and who cleanses. We call these 13 attributes God's 13 Attributes of Mercy. And there are books written on these 13 attributes. And to me, these are the things that make God my God. These are the things that inspire my love and devotion to him. They're the things that inspire my faithfulness to him. I fear God because I know he is the judge of all the earth because he's all-powerful, he knows everything, he's everywhere at one time, he's present, there's nothing he, does, he misses. But the thing that makes me love him and want to be with him and to know him and to see his glory, the things that, that inspire that are these attributes of his goodness, his tov these 13 attributes of mercy. I've gone over these in detail in previous teachings on Kitisa. I'm going to do it quickly here. But if you want to hear a more detailed treatment of this, you can go back to one of those teachings, or there are other teachers there and books that comment on these. They're wonderful. But to me, this passage of the Torah is right there, at the, the top of Mount Everest for me when, in the Torah. This is the epitome that describes to me who God is and why, not just why he is God, but why he's my God. He said, Adonai, Adonai, El. And by Adonai, we're saying Yadhe That's his, his name, Hashim. That's the tetragrammaton, Yadhe He says it twice, but he says El once. So he gives these three expressions of his name, Yadhei Vavhei twice, but El just once. Why is that? Well, you probably know, if you've been listening for any time at all or have been reading rabbinic works, you know whenever God uses the name Yadhei Vavhei, he's expressing his attribute of mercy. But when he uses the name El or Elohim, it's his attribute of strict justice. When you read through Genesis 1, every time it refers to God, it's always El or Elohim. Because when he creates the world, he creates it with strict justice. In other words, very strict rules. And if you study science, you'll know that this planet, it exists according to very strict rules. It's distance from the sun, it's distance from the moon, the content of the atmosphere, uh, the temperature, the, everything about the, the makeup of this planet and its relationship to the sun and moon have to be precise, because if they're not, there's not going to be any life here. And sure enough, God created this world with strict justice, strict rules, so that the balance of planet Earth and its ecology would be perfect to sustain life. But when you get over into chapter two and three, where God makes man, guess what? He starts using his name, Yadevave, because man needs some wiggle room. God's going to have to be merciful to man. Man can't live under strict justice, at least not yet. And God realizes I'm going to have to to be very merciful and very tolerant of these human beings I'm putting on this planet. And so when he makes uh, Adam and Eve, he uses the term Adonai Elohim. He takes both names and puts them together. In other words, I'm going to be merciful to you, but there are rules to follow. And Adam and Eve found that out the hard way when they stole from God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they got evicted. And their lifespans were no longer eternal. They were shortened. So they experienced God's strict justice. But he clothed them and he gave them children. And later he gave his Torah. Later he sent his Messiah. And the day is coming when he restores Gan Eden once again. We have a new heavens and new earth. So, we see Adonai two times, El once. What's God telling us here? That his attribute of mercy always precedes and overshadows his attribute of strict justice. He is a just God. But his mercy, his mercy is renewed every morning. And uh, he's letting us know here. So anyways, he's compassionate. Rachum is the word. It comes from the word rechem, which means womb. Like a mother carrying a baby in her womb. That's how God feels towards us. He's compassionate, protective. He's gracious. Chanun is the adjective, gracious. But the noun is the word chen, Ken. And uh, this is the word for grace. And God has great grace towards us. People say, well, there's no grace in the, in the Old Testament. Grace came with the New Testament. Really? Have they ever read the Hebrew scriptures? Anyways, I'll get myself worked up if I don't move on. Slow to anger. <laughs> um, that's what this phrase means, but if you want to translate arachapim, it means long of nose, long of nose, uh, because when someone's long of nose, it means they keep cool, they keep breathing, you know, and you get angry, and maybe your husband or wife says, just breathe, just breathe, <laughs> and that's what God does. Sometimes he's got to go, okay, I'm going to count to ten, and he's long of nose, He's slow to anger. doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. A God who's not capable of anger is not capable of true love. Because real love is going to demand anger at times. If you really love your kids, you're going to become very angry at anyone who hurts them. If you really love your spouse, you're going to become angry at someone who diminishes them and mocks them. All right? Real love demands anger at the appropriate time. But he's slow to anger. He's slow. And we need to be the same. We need to be aruk, apim. We're long of nose, Abundant, rav and chesed. Chesed is a wonderful word. I've commented on that word before. And um, chesed is, is sometimes translated loving kindness. It goes beyond just Kindness. It does not mean niceness. It means giving everything to someone who deserves nothing. And God is Rav in that. He's great in Kesed. He's great in Emmet, truth. Truth, Emmet. Wonderful thing. There's no falsehood in God whatsoever. There's no darkness in him. He's the preserver of kindness for thousands of generations. So, Nets. That's there, there's that word chesed again. He preserves chesed, the alafim, to thousands, and referring to thousands of generations. And then he's the bearer, the nasa, of iniquity, that's avon, willful sin, that's pesha, that is rebellious sin, and error, chatat. <clears throat> chatat is the word that we often translate simply as sin and that's okay as long as we understand the word sin means error, you goof, you make a mistake. But when you commit an error on purpose then that elevates it to the level of avon or even to pesha which is outright rebellion and rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. But you know what God bears He bears with all three. He tolerates all three. He won't always tolerate these. (coughs) Excuse me. But for now, he does. He is a very tolerant God. He puts up with a lot. But then the 13th, he cleanses. He cleanses. It it doesn't... This goes beyond just forgiving. Uh, It goes beyond atonement. Atonement, kippur, means to cover. This means to remove, completely remove. And I've said before that nowhere is Yeshua's sacrifice on the cross called an atonement. Nowhere. There's one place in the King James, it's referred to as atonement, but that's a bad translation. He did not atone. He did not cover our sins. He did something much more profound. He removed them. That's what he does. He removes them. That's wonderful. But well, look what it says, in near the uh, middle of verse seven, who cleanses, but does not cleanse completely, recalling the iniquity of parents upon children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. He bears loving kindness to thousands of generations. But when there is sin, when there is generational sin, he'll let it go on for two or three generations. Because what it, the, the, the bottom line here is that to remove all consequences of rebellious sins is not good for us. If I never experienced consequences for my sins, I probably wouldn't repent of them. But allowing people to experience consequences of their sin, but in a measured way, just the right degree, can bring repentance. Repentance. God's kindness brings repentance, but it also tells us, Paul tells us that God's severity also brings repentance. It's the kind of carrot or stick thing, whichever works, and sometimes it takes a bit of both. I want to point out something to you that is important. There are 13 attributes listed here. And I know traditionally we think of 13 as an unlucky number. I don't know where that came from. But 13 appears many times in Scripture, often in a hidden way. But 13 is the number of the word *ichad*, which means one. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ichad*. He's one. If we take the numerical value of that word, aleph equals one, Chet equals eight. Dalit equals four. If you add those together, you get 13. But it's also the numerical value of the word Ahava, which is the word for love. Ahava. Aleph is one. Hey is five. Beit is two. He again is five. Thirteen. Ahava, love, makes us Ichad, one. And when a husband and wife love one another with real ahava, then they become ichad. they become one. It's interesting, if you take the names of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, count the number of letters in each name, you'll find there's a total of 13 letters in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then you take the four matriarchs. You have Sarah, Rivka, Rebekah, and then Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah, count up the number of letters and the names of the four matriarchs, there are 13 letters there. 13 letters in the patriarchs, 13 letters in the matriarchs. 13 is Ahava, it's love and it's showing a picture of the love of one for another. Now what happens when we double 13? We get 26. 26 is the number of God's name, Yud, He, Vav, He, 10, 5, 6, 5. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because if we look at this passage in Hebrew, there we have it, Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, we discover something quite interesting. If you start with the first Yod that we come across in the passage, the Yared, and he descended, you find the first Yod right here. If you count forward 40 letters, you come to a hey you count forward another 40 letters, you come to a Vav. And if you count, to a, count another 40 letters, you come to another He. And yud He, Vav, He That's how you spell God's name. You say, well, what does that have to do with, with 13? Well, if every 40th letter spells God's name, that means you have 39 letters in between yud and He, He and Vav, and Vav and He. And 39 equals 3 times 13. There's our number again. And if you count up the number of letters in this passage, you'll find that there are 169 letters. You can count them up. They're right there. You can print out the the notes and count them yourself. And 169 equals 13 times 13. It's 13 squared. Now, some people poo-poo the numeric values of, of the letters in Hebrew, but the God who gave us the Torah, the God who created the world, is also the God who created mathematics. It's another language of his, after all. And we'll find mathematical patterns woven throughout the scriptures. So if your faith is not strong enough yet to embrace the numerical values of God's letters and words, well, just... Over time, you'll grow, your faith will get stronger, and you'll begin to see that God has saturated the word with his presence, with his beauty and his balance. So, let's go on to our discussion questions. In your own words, describe the significance of the three gifts that the wise men brought to Yeshua. Okay, The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. Number two, what is God's solution to idolatry? And I want you to discuss it in more detail than I did, because probably when I was sharing about this, you were getting thoughts. Share them with your group. Number three, read and discuss the description of Bezalel and Aholiab. We did not get to Aholiab, but um, if you look up their names, these, uh, these names are very pertinent. After all, these are the two men who are going to oversee the construction of the tabernacle. One of the words or phrases for the tabernacle is the uh, the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, tent of appointment, and the name means tent of of tent of the Father. So, what principles can you glean for your own life? We are tabernacles of God's Spirit. But God invites us to do work in our own tabernacles, to bring our tabernacles, our body, soul, and spirit in alignment with his pattern. And the more we do this, the more God's presence dwells within us, more fully it dwells within us. And so when you look at the attributes of Bezalel and the holy ab, what can you learn about how you should be as you help construct your tabernacle according to the pattern? Okay, so each of us should be a Bezalel, and, and the Holy Holiab. Also read 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17, and do you see a relationship. Last, we have looked at the significance of the number 13 in today's portion. What other 13s do you see in Scripture? I shared a few with you, but there are more. You can start with the number of tribes, and I think you'll, you, that'll launch you into looking and seeing more 13s in Scripture. Always watch for these. They're usually hidden a little bit, But if you dig them out, they're there. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much for this portion that we've just, just barely scratched. We've just barely touched upon it. Father, there's so much there. There's an eternity of things to discover that you've hidden there for us. So, Lord, I pray that deep in our spirits we would experience joy because we have touched something that is holy. And I pray that out of that joy you'll speak to our hearts and our minds and we'll see you more clearly, we'll recognize your goodness and your glory so that we can, in this world, in the physical, do your malachah, your works. So make us the people you want us to be. And I pray that this teaching, these words, these insights will help us to accomplish that goal. And we ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen.